Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Don't let your ego get in the way of, you know, teaming up with people who can help you put on a good case and work together. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this afternoon? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was good to see uh, our producer Raz has still got his uh, got his daughter with him. She's helping him uh, produce. He he multitasks. Great producer. Great dad. Oh great, yeah. Great guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, Yvonne, you want to introduce our guest? We have a fantastic trial lawyer for today. And, uh, um, and I was just thinking, uh, we, we have known, uh, Christine Spagnoli for a long time. We, we call her Chris. Uh, but I was looking at her, uh, uh, at her bio and, um, she has a lot of accomplishments on here. Um, she really does. And she doesn't know this, but she's, even though I didn't really know her, she was a, um, secret hero of mine because, <laughs> um, you know, products work is tough and there are not a lot of, um, I would say women out there, female role models that you can kind of see who are doing it and, and, and crushing it. Um, but Chris is definitely one of them. And as soon as I figured out she was a woman because she does <laughs> go on Chris Spagnoli, she was instantly my hero, not just because she's a woman, but she's definitely a hero of mine. Um, so anyway, Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always love to hear nice things said about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Please, please go on. Yeah, this is this is our Thanksgiving gift to you. Right. Um, well, it. let's for our listeners who don't know you, let's tell them a little bit about you. Um, Christine Spagnoli is a partner at Green, Broilette, and Wheeler um, in the Santa Monica area. And you can look her up at gbw.law, um, which is just a great website. Um, I know. I, I mean, it, it's so hard to not say .com, but uh, she's, they've got a .law website. And, uh, how, I mean, we'll, we'll get into your accomplishments, but how does that work out? Have you noticed uh, any difference in people trying to find you or anything? Yeah, a lot of internet websites want to, when you, they ask you to put in your email address, they don't really understand what to do when you put .law. And they said, did you mean .com? No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I did not. Um, well, it's great. So, so look her up at gbw.law. And as Steve mentioned, um, Chris has so many accomplishments that it was really difficult to figure out what to talk about because there was so much. And we obviously want to talk about her case too. Um, so I picked some of my favorites just as a, as a general background, uh, Chris represents plaintiffs in product liability, personal injury, legal malpractice. She's gotten many multi-million dollar verdicts and even a multi-billion dollar verdict uh, against GM in, in 1999 for defective fuel tank. But one of her kind of areas of expertise that we're going to come back to on this episode is that she has really spearheaded some litigation um, arising for litigation arising out of 15 passenger bans. Um, and that's that's what the case we're going to talk to talk about today relates um, to. And if you've been in a church group or on a sports team, um, you've probably been in a 15 passenger van. I 
played volleyball in college. And that is where we rode in everywhere we went. And I had no idea how dangerous they were, um, until I started, um, practicing products law. And actually I was riding around in these things right around when, um, the accident happened that we're going to talk about today. But before we get to that, um, I want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you, Chris. Um, Chris has, has, has spearheaded a lot of important litigation, not just 15 passenger vans, but she's been plaintiff's liaison counsel in, in cases involving Cooper tires. She's been on steering the steering committee for cases involving, um, Firestone Ford Firestone issues. Um, in 2017, Chris was offered, uh, was honored by AAJ with the, um, Harry M. Is it Philo? Philo? Philo. Philo. Award. Um, for her, amazing contribution to the civil justice system. And one of the common themes that you'll be hearing about is how Chris is out there protecting consumers. In 2012, the Consumer Attorneys Association of LA recognized Chris as its trial lawyer of the year. The first time that honor went to a woman trial attorney. Um, in 2017, this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, Chris was a consumer watchdog named, awarded Chris the Rage for Justice Lifetime Time Legal Achievement Award, which is, is just a, how cool. That's a great <laughs> name. I got, yeah. to, I got to take the stage with Jackson Brown and Bernie Sanders that night. That was, <laughs> oh, that's cool. That was a cool <laughs> night. <laughs> that is so cool. And now, now you're stuck with me and Steve. Yeah, Nada. exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a close, that was a, that was a close second to today is what you're saying, I think. <laughs> uh, and one of the um, the coolest, most recent, probably honors that Chris has gotten is that the California governor, Gavin Newsom, named her to the Judicial Selection Advisory Committee in L.A. So she is one of those very important people that reviews um, judicial candidates for um, for consideration and provides feedback about them. And that's obviously a position that requires um, a lot of trust, a lot of responsibility. So how cool is that? Um, and she, and then she's got, uh, in addition to all of that, she's got all the awards that, that a lot of our, our guests have that we talk about, you know, super lawyers, most influential lawyers, top woman litigator. Um, and we're just so honored for you to be on the show, Chris. Wow. That's nice. And thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to revisiting the Morrow case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is a big yeah. one. This is. This is a big one. And this was, I, I learned more than I, I, I thought I knew a lot about, about 15 passenger vans, but I actually learned a lot more reading this case and, and the materials that you sent. Um, so as Chris mentioned, we're going to talk about the Morrow versus Ford case. And um, this is a case that was tried in 2011, but it involved an accident, a, a vehicle accident that occurred in April, 2004. And as we already mentioned, this was a Ford, um, E350 Econoline 15 passenger van that overturned rolled over four times after a tire tread separation. And in the van were, were four members of the fair express between they were on I five in Sacramento. And it sounded like they were, um, they were members of like the church band that they were going maybe to, to, to back the church choir or something like that. Yeah. They had um, been on a, the spring sing. And so the church um, group students in the, in the choir were in a charter bus 
and the band was using the 15 passenger van to, because they had all their band equipment. And so they would um, follow along the charter bus and they, they were on their way back to Sacramento when the accident happened. Got it. Okay. And uh, so the van that they were in had, um, had Goodyear, um, I wrote, Goodyear load range E tires. I'm sure Chris probably still knows the, probably the exact uh, model oh, number. 4575R16 Goodyear Wrangler. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there you have it. Um, and the tires on this vehicle um, had known tread separation problems. And uh, this kind of makes me think of the the one of the more recent episodes that we recorded, Steve, but unlike... Um, unlike some cases you have where they know there's a problem and they don't do anything about it, Goodyear eventually uh, made the move to conduct voluntary replacement of these tires, of these defective tires. But, and Chris is going to talk more about that. Manufacturers. And so they, Goodyear, notified Ford about the recall. Uh, but Ford did not notify its didn't notify its dealers and didn't notify 100% without question the the church was not notified that there was a recall on these tires and um as we've already mentioned and as you you can probably expect knowing the cases that we talk about on this show um the tire separated in this case and uh, the the driver of the vehicle lost control um it, and in the in the accident, the driver was killed. His name was Real, uh, William Brownwell. The front seat passenger was also killed, Tony Morrow. And then two other passengers in the vehicle were injured as well. Marlene Shirley and Alexander Besinov um, suffered injuries. And so obviously, so a case comes out of this with all the plaintiffs against Ford. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Skipping ahead to the verdict, which was in Sacramento, uh, the Sacramento jury re returned a verdict of $73 million and 50 uh, million of that was for, was for punitive damages, which is, um, always awesome. And we're going to talk yeah. more about that. Um, but Chris, I mentioned, um, and we'll get, we'll get a chance to fix all the stuff I glossed over and, and maybe got wrong, but uh, we talked about before we were recorded, one of the interesting things, Chris, I think is how you got involved in this case, because you were really, um, you were brought in because you were already the go-to person on this issue and your experience with these issues. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the lawyer who had the case and who is a tremendous trial lawyer is Roger Dreyer in Sacramento. And Roger uh, and one of his partners, Bob Bale, had been working on the case for a number of years. And I had um, a long history with 15 passenger vans and Goodyear load range tires. And in fact, um, an earlier case of mine uh, that involved a Goodyear load range tread separation is sort of formed the basis of the material that I was uh, able to send to NHTSA in 2002 or in 2000, uh, forgive me, which it was about the time the Firestone Tire recall was going on. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is because there was a direct link between NHTSA investigating Firestone. I had these 15 pass, I mean, I'm sorry, I had these Goodyear Load Range E tire cases 
and I had gathered a bunch of material. So I sent it off to them and it happened to be the right time at NHTSA to get someone's attention that tire issues were very um, high profile at the time. So they opened an investigation into the tires in October of 2000. And in 2002 is when the recall occurred uh, as a result of a deal that Goodyear made with NHTSA to take the tires off. Only, only 15 passenger vans and ambulances. So the Goodyear Load Rangey tire was original equipment on a lots of different vehicles, including pickup trucks and SUVs, but NHTSA and Goodyear focused on the 15 passenger vans and ambulances because clearly many of the crashes uh, had involved multiple occupant vehicles. And so NHTSA was more concerned about the potential for lots of deaths and injuries if one tire failed in those vehicles. So they, Goodyear cut a deal and it was a, it was a, a deal that they were going to go to Ford and ask Ford for the VIN numbers for all the 15 passenger vans that had been supplied these tires between 1992 and 1999. Those were the model years involved. And so Ford said, okay, we'll give you the VIN numbers, but it's not our re recall. It's Goodyear's recall. So here you go. Here's the VIN numbers. See you later, Goodyear. Good luck. And that's, they'd wash their hands of it. And meanwhile, in 2002, Ford um, changed out the tires. They started using the newer model that we had said all along was a better design, which had nylon overlays. And so Ford actually adopted a new design tire that had the extra layer of protection, the safety layer, and they stopped using these older tires, but they did nothing themselves about the tires that had been on the market. So Roger Dreyer called me when this case was getting close to getting ready for experts and asked me to get involved uh, to help represent at that time. Initially, I was brought in to represent the driver because as we know, and you've probably talked about in some of these tread separation cases, Many times the manufacturers of the tire or vehicle want to blame the driver. And so there is technically a conflict potential between the driver and the, the passengers. And so Roger asked me to get involved to represent the driver and defend the driver's handling of the vehicle and the loss of control, which not unexpectedly Goodyear and Ford were both trying to blame him and said he should have been able to pull over instead of rolling over. And at the time, we also had Goodyear was also still a defendant in the case. So, so I stepped in and started working on the case with the experts and focused primarily on the liability issues, both with respect to the tire and the loss of control and helped get all the experts prepared for trial. And then just before trial, uh, Ford, settled with, Goodyear settled with everyone. And that left an interesting empty chair, which we can talk about. Um, yeah. But uh, we had Ford left in the case and Ford was interested in talking to me to get the Brownell portion, the driver's case settled. And we were able to get it resolved. 
Meanwhile, they kind of just stiff-armed Roger in the wrongful death case for the passenger. And he said, I'm trying the case. (laughs) Do you want to come back after I had settled with the driver? Do you want to come back and be the lawyer for the passenger in the rear, Alex Bezanoff, who was the, um, one of the band members who had been bounced around in the back, rolled around, had about $7,000 in medical bills, um, had, I don't even think spent a night in the hospital and was obviously quite, you know, emotionally distraught at being yeah. involved in this accident, but he still had a claim. And so I, we went to trial with myself representing Alex Bezanoff, Roger representing the Mora family, and uh, another lawyer representing Marlene Shirley, who was the other passenger. Yeah, well, one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, Ford obviously uh, was took the position. It sounded like uh, really on appeal that uh, you know, hey, this is Goodyear's problem because we're talking about a tread separation of a of a Goodyear tire. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this tire had actually been replaced at some point within, and so it, it was, this actual tire that separated wasn't the OEM, but they had replaced it with the exact same tire Sears, right. I think, had. And, um, and, and at one point, I know you had Sears in the case, but um, I, I think the, the instructions that Ford had given were that you have to replace this with the exact same tire. Right, uh, right. So the... At the point that they did that Goodyear did the recall, the the newer vans from 2000 on had not had only been getting the the load range tires with nylon overlays. So there was this whole group of vans that were manufactured between 92 and 99, and those vans, their original equipment specification was the what they call the four ply tire instead of the six ply tire. And so Ford never told its, its, uh, its dealers that the four ply tires had been recalled. And the, this church, and that's, this is the issue with these vans. They're around forever. You know, they're, they're not used every day they sit in church parking lots they sit in school parking lots um they they're used as hotel shuttle vans airport vans so the kind of usage is particularly with the church is that they end up lasting forever and they they get sort of sporadic maintenance and um so this this van had been to the Ford dealer multiple times with the tire on it that had been recalled. And the issue going forward at the trial was the Ford dealer had no idea that the tire needed to be replaced and neither did the church. Yeah. It it sounded like one of the things that you all had really done successfully at trial was establishing this, this history of, of regular maintenance on the vehicle, all these opportunities to switch out the tire. And it sounded like, um, you also had a, um, I don't know if it was somebody from Sears or one of the dealerships who was pretty emotional basically about not having this information and the opportunity to, to swap this tire out. It, it was a very dramatic moment in the courtroom 
And it was the actual manager, service manager of the Ford dealership that um, was also a defendant in the case. And he, he was stunned because he had sat there at, in the trial and saw all this information about these tires and these vehicles and how bad they were. And he was beside himself that Ford didn't think it was important to convey the information to the dealers um, to get the tires off the vehicle. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta.com legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. And one of the things that, that, that you all clearly did a good job showing the jury, because, you know, you've obviously got this sort of, like we've talked about, you've got this empty chair now, cause Goodyear's not in the case anymore, but people are going to be hearing tire, 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 and then they're going to be thinking about the tire, uh, manufacturer. But one of the things that you, that you all really help the jury understand. And I'm hoping you can talk to our listeners about is why the combination of this tire with the problems that 15 passenger vans already have and, and what Ford knew about that, why that was such a dangerous combination. Yeah. I right. think that um, it, it, it's true. Really our concern in having settled out Goodyear is clearly if the tire manufacturer has recalled the tire, it's a dangerous tire. There's something wrong. It doesn't belong on the vehicle. And here in California, we have a modified joint in several. So if there's an empty chair, like in this case, Goodyear was the empty chair, then the defendant in the trial is going to be doing everything they can to put as much fault on the tire company as they can or the driver and lessen the, the fault against Ford. And so our goal in the case was to explain that these vans are so dangerous that they're defective 
they're unsafe with four good tires on them. Right. And so it, it <laughs> you start out with something that shouldn't be on the road to begin with. And the problem with these vans is because of the design, it's got what's called a bustle back design. So in essence, what Ford did, and we're talking going back to the 70s when they first started, came up with this concept that Ford was trying to compete with General Motors and Chrysler that were coming out with these extended vans. And so internally, the engineers um, said, well, we could do one of two things. Uh, we could literally add a row of seats and add 20 inches behind the rear axle, and that way we get 15 or we can extend the wheelbase and put dual rear wheels on in order to accommodate the extra weight behind, behind what then was the existing axle and, and length of the vehicle. So they chose the bustle back instead of the duals. And they chose the bustle back instead of extending the, the um, wheelbase. And the problem it creates is when you put cargo and people, you're raising the center of gravity and especially you're moving it rearward. The, the vehicles are rear, rear weight biased. So there's more of a load on the rear axle than the front axle. And if you have any kind of emergency avoidance steering maneuver, the back end slides out very quickly. It, it, it can be gone just, you know, going around a, a, a a traffic cone and we had some really dramatic footage and this is now i i tried the moro case in 2011 i also tried almost exactly the same case down in florida um two years ago and it was a church van with the rear tread separation loss of control and a rollover same thing so what happens is the, the our focus of the trial was this van is so bad that Ford should have done something to make sure that those tires weren't on those vans. And they should, they really, those vans shouldn't be on the road. They're, they're just too dangerous. So we, we made every effort to point the finger at Ford and say, you know what? Yeah, it's a bad tire, but you start out with a bad vehicle. It, you, you, you didn't give these people a chance. Yeah, one of the things that I had not ever seen before um, that I saw on the the webinar that your firm has about this case was that was the I guess it was an outtake from Ford litigation testing where the van is just like it's supposed to be just be weaving through cones and it's crazy out of control. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah, you know, uh, it. I think that footage is really dramatic and I really have to give props to uh, the lawyers around the country who, before we tried the Morrow case, had spent years chasing Ford for the internal in, uh, materials they had about their testing of these vans. And what had happened was Ford had nothing in their, de in their development process. They put vehicles through what they call their P6101, their handling tests. And in order to pass Ford's uh, muster with their engineers that a vehicle is safe, they have to go through this series of P6101 tests and their lane change, single lane change, double lane change, 
um, J turns, all kinds of things. But they had no documentation. The, the model vehicle we had um, had been approved for um, production in 92 or 93. So they had nothing. Um, they, have not, they have no documentation or video of the testing that they did before they approved the design of the vehicle and, or any subsequent models. So what they did is they hired uh, a couple of outside experts to take the vans out and run them through these tests and videotape them to demonstrate for the jury how safe they were. And so when you get one of these cases and you have the defense expert show up, they give you their nice little litigation testing notebook. And it's got the stuff they want you to see. And before um, I got involved in, in these cases, other lawyers had been very aggressively going after anything Ford had that was behind the scenes. And so a couple lawyers had gotten the outtakes of the demonstration P6101 test. And as you, as you can see, it's dramatically different. You know, the Ford test that they showed the jury is doing a nice smooth maneuver. And then the one that's in the outtake, same driver, same day, it slides off the course. And there was even some testimony, again, from another lawyer who had uh, found a test driver from the 92 or 91 testing when Ford had first put the vehicle on the market or had it tested to decide whether to sell it. And that test driver <laughs> um, gave a deposition and it's, it's, stunning because he basically admitted that in the testing, he had been going through what they call the slalom course, which was going around cones. And the vehicle went up on two wheels and laid down on its side. Now he didn't call it a rollover. Right. <laughs> it was according to him. It wasn't a rollover. It was a lay down. It went up on two wheels for a hundred feet. <laughs> And then it laid down on its side. And <laughs> his, his, his testimony was, well, I didn't write a report about that because it wasn't anything about the vehicle that was the problem. It was the fact that I wasn't a good enough test driver. So it, it, we didn't do any, we didn't report it to anyone. We didn't tell anybody we needed to take these vehicles and do something about them because it was my fault that I was not a good test driver. So, um, yeah, they had, that was one of the, we got to play that deposition video for our jury to just show how far back Ford knew there was a problem with these vehicles. Yeah, I, I, I was, I, I read in your closing where you went through that section and I was just thinking, I mean, you know, what is Ford doing while, while you're up there explaining this and showing this to the jury of their vehicle laying down and then, you know, these, the, you know, the, and, and we all know that these experts that they hire, these are all professional drivers. They know how to drive in, in emergency situations. So he's a much better driver than your average driver on the roadway. And, and he lays down this vehicle. And then of course, at the same time, they want to say, 
say, well, you know, he couldn't control it, but, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Brown, well, he should have, he should have been able to, you know, control right. it and he didn't know it was right. coming at all. Uh, right. I mean, that just had to be so uh, powerful for the jury. Well, and really the visuals of the, and it was all, I think we only played three or four of the outtakes. It doesn't take very much yeah. to sit there and watch what their professional drivers are ha- struggling with on their own test courses and they're being given a pass and the jury's looking at that going, Holy crap. I don't want to get in one of those things. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. It, it's bad. It, it's very compelling evidence. It, so- it's, why there's punitive damages in this this case. One of the things that surprised me in that part of the case uh, was that, so, you know, you had some of the, you know, really well-known Ford experts, especially when it comes to these rollover cases like Lee Carr. Uh, I think maybe Don Tandy showed up as well. No, it um, it was Lee Carr. Yeah. And you and I had never seen the admission that you were reading about in his closing about the admitting that with a tread separation, this vehicle is defective. I'd never seen right. that before. That's I mean, at that point, I don't know how Ford keeps going. It's just like, well, he just said it. Well, again, they want to say it's still the tire. It's not the vehicle. So um they they really had to walk a fine line with that testimony. I I, I don't, you know, to me, it, it's that's it. The case is over. But they right. they work their way around it. They basically say, oh, you know, it's uh it's it's the vehicle's fine. It's the tire that's bad. And so that was their way of trying to again just put everything off on Goodyear and let keep the percentage against them very low or non-existent. So, yeah. And I, I didn't mention that the jury ultimately awarded um, or allocated 59% of the fault to, to Ford and 41% to, um, to Goodyear and none to the driver um, and the other folks that would, that were, um, that they were trying to blame. So their strategy of sort of minimizing their fault didn't really work. Um, yeah, what we were really happy with that distribution. Uh, among other things, there were seatbelt issues, right. um, and the jury didn't put any fault on anybody for not having their seatbelt on, or at least not properly wearing it. In case of Marlene Shirley, um, and they didn't blame the driver at all, which was a, a you know terrific result and obviously something you know i feel very strongly about they, they don't give the drivers a chance and yeah. so having a greater percentage on ford versus goodyear that was the goal of that you know case we we were we knew we were going to get a percentage against goodyear but so we wanted to keep it as low as we could We've explained this before, but under California law, under your modified joint several, because I I do notice that they did put 1% on Marlene Shirley. And I think she said that she was laying down and had the seatbelt around her midsection or something like that. How does it work out? The wrongful death, Tony Morrow didn't have his belt on. Right, right. And, And Ford had the burden of proving that if he had been wearing his seatbelt, he would have lived. And so Roger handled that issue and very effectively. I mean, we had a lot of discussion about how to approach that issue. Um, My kind of 
initial thought was to concede some percentage of fault. Roger wanted to straight up get a 0% on Tony Morrow. And I, I kind of frankly thought it would be unlikely, but um, Ford had Robert Pizzioli was the uh, <laughs> expert on biomechanics. And, yeah. and he's, I don't know that he's testifying for them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was a, a, a lot of issue because the passenger was um, on what we call the far side. So when the vehicle starts to roll, their side's going up and the head's, your head and shoulders are going out and they, you can very easily get partially ejected even if you're wearing a seatbelt in a roll. And when the vehicle rolls and land, touches down on the far side, the first roll, people have their heads exposed to the ground. And so Roger's um, argument, and we had an expert explain this, was you can't, you can't say that Mr. Morrow would have walked away if he had a seatbelt on, because there are many cases where people wearing properly wearing their seatbelt are killed in these rollovers. In fact, I had another 15 passenger van case with the right side front seat passenger, same thing, but, yeah. and they're, you know, they didn't survive and they were completely properly seatbelted. So the way the percentages of fault works is if you have two defendants or one defendant that's at trial and one that has settled and you get 60, 40, we'll just use that easy 60, 40%. The, on the defendant at trial is 60%. You can collect 60% of your non-economic damages from that defendant. If you have economic damages, you can get 100% of it from the non-settling defendant. And then you deal with things like set-offs and credits and after the fact. So because this was an, a wrongful death case, primarily for the Morrow family, I think Roger, the award for the wrongful death was 16 million non-economic damages. Oh, so right. yeah. end of the day, the judgment was for 59% of the 16 million. Okay. And there was also some economic damages too. So that's how it works. Get yeah. it? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that was huge, especially, I mean, that has, I mean, obviously, yes, the division between Ford and Goodyear, you know, Goodyear's going to get something, but that's such a great division. But on top of that, you had to feel like they were with you I mean, obviously, because they wanted to award punitive damages, but also because they didn't allocate fault to the driver, which normally you're you just, you know, they just compromise back there and give a little bit, even when they're they're with you. Um, one of the other things that that was interesting about this case was that they did not try to bifurcate the punitive damages phase, which it seems like would work in your favor for the things you were able to talk about. Um, there's, you know, it's interesting that it's, it's 100% the defense call on, on whether to bifurcate punitive damages or not. If they had asked for it, it would have been, um, uh, bifurcated. Um, I, I think the strategy from at the time talking to the lawyers about why they weren't going to bifurcate it, there's some 
the jury doesn't know that they come back for a second phase. If you bifurcate, they know they have to answer a question. Do you find by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant acted with malice, oppression, or fraud? And if they answer yes, then they get the evidence on what amount should you award. And so um, the juries typically don't know that there's going to be a second opportunity to award damages, punitive damages. And so some defendants and defense lawyers think that if you bifurcate the punitives, a really angry jury will unload and give a very big non-punitive damage, a compensatory verdict. And then they'll go, oh, well, we thought we were, you know, we already mm-hmm. kind of unloaded on you. And now the punitive damages um, wouldn't be as much, but the defendants are much more concerned about having a big compensatory damage award because they usually have to pay those. Right. And so I think Ford thought that they would keep the numbers low on the compensatory and then they would attack the punitives if they got hit with punitives. Got it. So, you know, what's interesting about that is that this was a 2011 trial, which was the same year that uh, that Jeff Harris and I tried the case uh, against Ford, Monday versus Ford. And in Georgia, it's normally bifurcated. But in that case, Ford asked for it to be in one, uh, you know, all, all at once. And, uh, and we didn't object because we, we were thinking about it at the time that, you know, we had just gone through uh, the big bankruptcy and the bailout and everything. And, and we thought, you know, maybe Ford was going to be able to come in there and show how they had been able to avoid that. Maybe that was somehow going to help them. So we just decided to do it all in one phase as well. But it, I'm just thinking this must have been some discussion at Ford back in that time that this was their strategy that they were going to yeah. try and do their punitives in one phase instead of yeah. two. Because it just so happens the same year. Making that call. Right, right. Exactly. Maybe maybe it's not the way to go. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. Well, and so, I mean, until you explained it to me, I really couldn't understand why you would ever do that. I know we've had a couple other episodes on the show, Steve, where the defense has chosen not to bifurcate, but I I guess I get it. Um, But. Well, you know, and we talk a lot of times about cases where juries were clearly on the plaintiff's side, but still elect not to award punitive damages in cases where they're warranted. And so I I think it's a real I mean, so so in Georgia, we get to tell them that there's going to be a second phase. We tell them there's it's going to be a shorter phase and that it's specifically going to be about punitive. So they so they know it's coming if they give it to us. I I tried a case up in New Jersey where you don't get to tell them that. And I think and we got a lower punitive damages award. And I think the jury thought after the first phase they were done i think they were surprised that they had to come back because we weren't allowed to tell them that and i think it did affect the uh i do think it affected the punitives in that case well you know it's interesting because the case i tried down in florida with um rich newsom again 15 passenger van tire tread separation complaint that the driver you know was at fault the passenger was not who died was not wearing a seatbelt. same stuff and in that case the, the jury did have the question and we didn't argue p- the amount of punitives. We argued whether there was clear and convincing evidence and they should answer yes. And they did not find punitives. But again, it was a wrongful death 
of a wife and mother with four kids, non completely non-economic damages case. And they gave us like $23 million. So, yeah. you know, they were, that was punitive in a lot of people's minds, even though it was yeah. all yeah. So yeah. it always makes me think of the first, like of just like four months after I started at the firm, the first case I ever worked on was that, was that, um, Chetri case, Steve, and it was a, it was a 15 passenger van rollover just coincidentally, but it always makes, it was my first ever trial. I was a nervous wreck the entire time. The jury's out deliberating and I am, I could not even leave the courthouse. Like everybody else goes to eat lunch and I just, I just sit there. It's just like torture and they come out with a question and the rest of the trial teams at lunch. And I'm like this, baby nervous wreck lawyer. And the judge is basically like, is there a lawyer from each side here? Then, then y'all come in here and I'm just going to tell you what the question is. And then we'll wait till everybody gets back from lunch. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and the question that the jury had was, and this is still after the, the first phase was, do we decide on the amount of punitive, punitive damages now? was their question. <laughs> and so obviously it was great. I breathe a sigh of yeah. relief, but Can we have a calculator. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. <laughs> a big but one. I, yeah. But I called, <laughs> I called Jeff who was at lunch and I told him what the question was and he didn't, he didn't believe me. He thought that like somebody had put me up to it just to mess with him. And I was like, no, that's, that's, that's the question. That's so great. Yeah. yeah. That's fun. Um, that was fun. More fun than some of the other jury questions. Yes. We've yeah. Gotten. No, no doubt. No all, doubt. All there. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to make sure before we move away from punitive damages, I do want to talk about what you all, um, obviously this was a massive punitive damages award and there was a lot that you all, a lot of work that you all put into, um, you know, both the, the helping the jury with the amount of that award. And then also just the things, the knowledge and opportunities that, that Ford had and, um, I especially want you to talk about your um, deposition of, you called him Mr. Callis. I can't remember what his real last name is, but because I, because that had to factor in to, to their amount. It, it's, it's one of my top five favorite clips. I have the video of that little clip. I use it a lot when I'm lecturing on, you know, trying cases. Um, his, his name is spelled K-A-L-I-S. And he likes to say it's Kalis. And, you know, <laughs> I just kind of have a hard time getting the word. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so Mr. Callis, um, he, it, 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 it was, it, he had, he was your typical Ford person, most knowledgeable 30 B six. They have the script. They have the answer that they're supposed to give no matter what the question is. And Mr. Callis's answer to the question was, Ford didn't care, is the way I framed the question. Well, the tire had met our specification. Tire had met our specification. Tire had met our specification. So he, in essence, was sitting there saying, Yes, we knew the tire had been recalled. Yes, we knew we had a different design that was a safer design, but this was a 93 model year vehicle. And in the 93 model year, we had a specification for an original equipment tire that only had four plies. So that tire that was on the van years later 
that failed met our specification. That was his answer. He was going to give no matter what. And so there was a couple minute stretch where he's giving me that answer. And he's saying, well, yeah, we didn't tell anybody because the tire met our specification. And I said, I said, so Ford didn't care that consumers were continuing to ride on that tire after 2002, which is when the recall occurred. And he'd say, well, it had met our requirements. And I said, again, well, so is your answer yes? Ford didn't care. Ford was not concerned. And he said, well, but it was Goodyear's recall. The tire had met our specifications. Is your answer yes? Ford was not concerned. And he kind of looks at me and he shrugs and he says, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. And Chris is like so chill. She's she's just like very chill, but you know how it is. You've got to keep pushing them to answer the actual question that you've asked, but she's very like, she's so chill about it that you kind of feel like maybe it's not that big of a deal. I, I felt it though that he would give, he would ultimately, and it was, if he will say that Ford was not concerned. Right. Ford was not concerned. So Ford was not concerned. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, um, I mean, what else do you need for conscious disregard of safety? (laughs) Right. Right. They're not concerned if people are driving on tires that would seem to me to be malice oppression and fraud <laughs> right yeah right yeah so Yvonne one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the great trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place and that's why we're talking about digital law marketing It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. 
So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So, you know, in California, you have the continuing duty to warn, post-sale duty to warn like we do in Georgia. Um, but there was, Ford had an explanation for why your van did not get the warning. And it oh, was that, that it was a conversion van or something along that. And it sounded like they had sort of surprised you with that at trial or, or that they had brought that up for the first time at trial and never mentioned it before. And then also talk about how that all kind of interplayed with the whole Ford Firestone. Cause they, I mean, these were kind of happening at the same time. The, the VIN number is a weird, it, it's their explanation for why this church never got a, a recall notice from Goodyear. They said, we gave Goodyear what Goodyear asked for. Goodyear asked for all vehicles that were 15 passenger vans that were sold with these original equipment tires. And because this was an incomplete vehicle, it was it didn't have it didn't have the seats in it. It didn't have the configuration. It was sold. I, I want to say originally it was sold, if I'm not mistaken, to like a commuter van service. So they were going to outfit it. Um, so it's technically as an incomplete vehicle, the VIN number is like one code, one letter different from a complete vehicle. And so it didn't get on the list that Ford gave Goodyear because they said, well, Goodyear didn't ask us for every vehicle that had these tires. They only asked us for complete vehicles. And right. You're kind of going, well, isn't it a... 15 faster van. I mean, isn't it yeah. the same size, whatever. So, so that was just, it, it, they kind of stumbled around on it. It was very confusing and you're like, okay. So, but in the meantime, the Ford dealers have this internal um, system where they can put in a VIN number and they can get um, any open recall. And in addition to that, <laughs> They, we we were able to establish that they had put on that system recalls of other tires and on other models. So they sort of left this one off, but they had the Firestone. They had, you know, there was some Michelin recalls. There were other recalls that were in this system. So um that that didn't really seem to the jury was kind of like what are you yeah. kidding you know it, it just it was a very technical paper pusher kind of a excuse well it's not our fault that Goodyear didn't get this you know number right <laughs> yeah right ask for all of the vans we we didn't think we needed to tell them that there oh there might be some other ones out there <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, not to mention the fact that it wouldn't really explain, it still wouldn't, if they had told their dealers and people right. about these tires, then that this, this van would have come in to the dealership with the wrong bad tires on it and they would have been swapped out. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's easy. It's, it's so easy. Um, 
really where I think that they were trying much harder on the, the liability was on the, the vans are fine and there isn't anything about 15 passenger vans that is odd or unusual that has a higher propensity for rolling over or losing control with the tread separation. Um, so, you know, they really try and, and, and say it handles exactly like a SUV handles when there's a tread separation. And we were able to get in evidence, a lot of the NHTSA evaluation of these vehicles, um, because of the punitive damage claim. So what did the Ford know or should have known about the hazards? And NHTSA was undergoing this evaluation, not just of 15 passenger vans, but also of the tires. So the Goodyear load range E tires and the Michelin, there was a Michelin um, tire recall about the same time. And there were two reports on the tires where the NHTSA said, we are seeing we see from the statistical evidence that there's that there's a greater risk with the large bands for with the tread separation which is how nitsa argued why they needed to take the tires off 15 passenger vans and not pickup trucks and not suvs and so we were able to get those nitsa those government reports in and and ford went to NHTSA for years to argue to them that the vans are safe. And, and we also got in the fact that NHTSA had published the one and only time or the, the one and only vehicle that it's ever published a consumer advisory about the, these vehicles. Be careful when you get in them, they roll over, right. <laughs> they lose control. <laughs> yeah. And it gets worse the more people you put in them. There's no other vehicle on the road that has had a consumer advisory. Um, and we were able to get those in. So I think that normally we don't have the government on our right. side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, one of the other really impressive things about this verdict that I think if you're, I think if you're probably a California lawyer, then you know this, but if you don't practice in California, then you might, um, here, Sacramento, and not really know that, not really think anything about that, not know that that's a tough venue. Um, and I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that and how y'all approach um, Vordire in this case in general, because you you were able to do something a little bit different, or at least not something you get to do all the time be, to really um, address the many issues that you were going to have with jury selection in a big case like this? Well, Sacramento's not exactly a bad place to try again. Oh, okay. Right, right. <laughs> I thought it was bad. It's our little secret. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll edit this out. <laughs> you don't mind trying cases in Sacramento? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there yeah. are a lot worse places to go. I, yeah, I right, right. Bakersfield or Fresno, but uh, or Stockton okay. or some of these other places. No, it's not bad. Um, but in terms of jury selection, um, you know, we had a great trial judge who pretty much let us, you know, do a, a, a deep and probing voir dire, um, and we had to get out things like 
do you do you have a bias against people who don't wear their seatbelts? Um, you know, the kind of issues it, it if you hear about a rollover, do you automatically assume it's the driver's fault? You know, the kind of basic stuff and and really damages we we were, you know, we spent a lot of time on in Wadir too. So when it sounded like y'all used a questionnaire to at least get a head start on some of that. Yeah, we did. We did. And, and you were able to work with Ford and get a good, get a we good questionnaire. Do. You know, you have to, uh, it, we fight over, you know, they have their jury consultant. We have our jury consultant. We have our questions that are, you know, sort of our ones that give you the, the sort of, you know, quick, uh, depending on how they answer that question, you got to go follow up They they might be a cause challenge or leave them alone because they're just fine. So, yeah. And they have their questions and, you know, having done, having argued about questionnaires for years with defense counsel, I know which ones they really want. Right. And they know which ones we really want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, right. We usually uh, give a little to get a little and, you know, maybe we kind of each get one or two of the ones we really want. And at the end of the day, you know, I'd rather know who I've got to go after. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you the, um, you know, we, we hear this a lot in product liability cases, but your uh, alternative design that you were suggesting to the jury was one to lengthen the wheelbase and two to have dual rear tires. And you had some testing uh, from your expert that, that showed that that basically turned this into an understeer vehicle from an oversteer vehicle. Uh, and so that it wouldn't um, roll over essentially. Um, it, but, you know, Ford's response, and we hear this all the time, is that, well, nobody does it that way. Um, and so I, I'm just interested here. How do you address that argument when they say, well, you know, look at all the other manufacturers. None of us are doing it like that. And plaintiff wants us to go out on this limb and do it in a totally different way than everybody else does. Well, see, the thing about the 15 passenger van is there are only three manufacturers making them. And by the time we went to trial on this case, both General Motors and um, Chrysler had stopped manufacturing their vehicles. And, uh, and so one of the, I'm, I want to say it's the, the Chrysler version had a little bit longer wheelbase. Um, and our, you know, you, there, you've seen dualies. Dually, right. There's big old pickup trucks with dualies. It's yeah. not... They put it's it on their not. big, Ford puts it on their big pickup trucks. I know that. Well, and they had a picture, <laughs> they had a nice little drawing of one from the 1979 proposal of their own engineers saying, gee, let's put dual rear wheels on. It'll work. And, and so it's kind of like, well, your own engineers thinks it's a good idea. And you said, no, I mean, it's kind of hard to criticize it when our guy goes and puts an aftermarket set of dualies on it and drives it all over the hell and never, and never goes out of control. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, exactly. We proved it worked. Um, you know, that their big criticism, which I have to laugh is, well, it's harder to go through the drive through because it's <laughs> right, right, right. That's a big yeah, problem. That's the reason not to have, because <laughs> she, yeah, you don't want to have to get out and go inside the store. I mean, now yeah. in times of COVID, maybe that would have uh, worked better. I, I don't know, but it, <laughs> it, it seemed like such a silly thing. They did 
they did really try and attack our expert on his testing of his vehicle. And um, they went harder at him in the Florida case and, and it, it didn't work. So uh, it's really, they haven't been able to, and, and, and in fact, their own expert, I want to say Lee Carr and I know Don Tandy, who testified in the Florida case, both agreed that dual rear wheels is totally uh, a technology that's available and works. So right, right. They're just saying we don't need it. And and, um, and one question: I, I, I know we've asked this in other cases, but um, so in California, you you give them both the um, consumer expectation test and the risk utility analysis, and they can find under one or the other and you win or both and you win. Um, and so, and is that just pretty normal in California that you just give them both uh, tests and they, and they choose which one they want to go with? It, it, it's, it depends on the product and how complicated or simple the design issue is. Most of us would prefer just to use consumer expectation, (laughs) but there have been some cases. There's a seminal case called Solm versus General Motors, S-O-U-L-E. And it's back in the nineties where, uh, and I actually was a co-author of an amicus brief on that case way back when I was a young lawyer. So it was pretty critical case where um, General Motors in that case, I think it was a, I can't remember, it's a crashworthiness case, was trying, they were trying to say, you can't have consumer expectation at all. And our Supreme Court came out and said, well, you know, cars shouldn't blow up when you get run, you know, rear-ended at five miles an hour. So there's some cases that it's appropriate for. And so that spawned a whole lot of litigation over when can you use the consumer expectation test in a products case. And there's a lot of cases since then that have said, oh, you can use it in an airbag case, but you can't use it in this case, or you can use it over here and you can't use it over there. So we, for the most part, it's calmed down, but there were a lot of years where there was some risk to just going on consumer expectation and then having the, the potential of a court of appeal saying you shouldn't have gone on that theory at all. So um, I think nowadays it's more common for people to just go on consumer expectation risk benefits. You know, it, it, it's more complicated. I think it's, it's pretty simple because you, the defendant has the burden of disproving that the, that the vehicle, that the product is not safe. Um, but it lets them get into a lot more, uh, you know, discussion evidence that is, you know, helpful to them. Right. Um, yeah. So, and for, and in Georgia, we only have the risk utility analysis. We don't get the uh, consumer expectation. So, uh, so we, we, and that's for strict liability. So, you know, you also have your, uh, you know, uh, failure to warn claims and things like that. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah. right. Um, well, uh, we haven't really had a chance to talk about uh, damages and how you went around uh, about to present damages for your uh, 
for for all of the clients. So I know you were, as a technical matter, were representing uh, Alexander Besanov in the trial. But just talk about generally about how um, you know who Tony Morrow was and and how you and how um, and Marlene Shirley. I think she was the choir director, if I saw um, you know, and and how you all went about you know presenting the damages for them. Well, I give all credit to Roger on the wrongful death damages. I mean, that was his baby. Um, he, he's just, you know, really, um, uh, did a, a wonderful job of, um, getting a jury to understand who Tony Mora was. I mean, he, he worked at a print shop bookbinding. He was a working class guy and, you know, he had a wife and two sons and um, he was a musician. And so one of the things Roger did that was um, really cool was he had this uh, tape of Tony playing his guitar and he got he was allowed to ask um, Susan Morrow, the wife, to, you know, this is my husband playing the guitar. And so we got the we got the the music in and then a bunch of pictures in. And then at the end for closing, he had a really lovely, um, you know, musical accompaniment to the picture show, which typically isn't something you can do. Right. right, Yeah. Yeah. I I saw somebody else, Debbie Chang did one with Michael Jackson, you know, the wrongful death case involving Michael Jackson, where she had his music and the, to, you know, illustrate his, his family life, which is, you don't get that chance too often. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, you know, my little guy, Alex Bezanoff, <laughs> so I didn't have, I didn't have any real economic damages right. to argue. <laughs> like what, what should you give a guy who goes on the weirdest roller coaster ride of his life? And it's over in about, 20 seconds. Uh, they did okay by Alex Bezanoff. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, I was, I was curious because, um, I saw this in, in the, the webinar that y'all have, but it was about, um, how at least Roger felt like it kind of at least worked to his favor, the delay and how long that, that, that the family had to wait to actually get the case to trial about, seven years. And I know you weren't brought in until, um, things were really sort of gearing up for trial, but was it just because it was so complicated or that it, that it took so long to get to trial? No, I'm not all that familiar with what the reasons were that it was, there, there were a lot, there were a lot of, I want to say peripheral parties, defendants. There were, you know, there were all these, any service shop that had touched the van, um, they were, you know, in the case at some point. And so there was a lot of running around on stuff that, you know, when you just simplify the case and you just get rid of all but the essential, it, it becomes a lot easier, but there were, you know, there were multiple plaintiffs, multiple lawyers, multiple defendants, uh, yeah. just managed to get dragged out. And I also think Sacramento, that courthouse was um, impacted for a while uh, with um, getting cases to trial. It it had gotten 
bad and it's getting bad again. Now we're obviously in a real slowdown. So yeah, those things okay. have a way of, you know, really, really. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Gotcha. So I, I, I want to hear, I, I know on appeal, they uh, brought up some issues, but one of the issues that they uh, said was juror misconduct. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think one of them had to do with a juror that might've been looking you up, but um, w- tell, what, what was this allegation of juror misconduct and, and uh, what came of that, I guess? Uh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> right. that, was, that one hit the pit of my stomach. You know, we were waiting for the new trial motion and uh, they launched uh, that. And um, they asked my office to preserve all the records of any computer IP address that had accessed our website over the time that the case was in trial. Because they, I think, thought that we were going to dispute that anything had occurred. And there was a one of the jurors at some point um, came into the jury room and, and said something like, oh, Miss Spagnoli, she only does the big cases, something like that. <laughs> she had clearly been on my website. Now, right. there wasn't anything on my website that had anything to do with 15 passenger vans or verdicts or anything like that. She had just done something she had been told not to do, which was look things, something up on the internet. So, um, we talked to her, she said she had done that. She had said that there was another juror defense juror who had given an affidavit. And so we, we had to basically respond by saying it did happen, but it was, it was no harm, no foul. It did. There wasn't any further discussion. There wasn't any thing that was, um, um, discussed in the jury room that had anything to do with, and it was before the verdict in the case. I think their point was, well, if it had been disclosed at the time, she would have been kicked off the jury, but it wasn't. And, and our judge was no big deal. You know, that I'm not concerned about that. Now, whether the Court of Appeal would have thought more of it, I don't know. When you end up with a big verdict and you have a juror who did something that they weren't supposed to do, um, it, w- it could be a reason why a Court of Appeal could say, eh, go try it again. So. Yeah, that would certainly be a, a, a real, um, you know, I, I would be surprised if they didn't just assume that jurors are going to look up the lawyers on the, you know, despite what you tell them. And we all know we give them the instructions, I guess, that whether or not they admit to actually having done it. Um, I do know if there is one lawyer here in Georgia, I know that uh, during trial, he takes his website down. He's the only one I've ever known that's done that. Well, we, we have um, talked about it. And I, I think that, um, I wouldn't say it's an automatic, but depending on the case, you know, we might consider or just scrubbing it so that it doesn't have anything that, you know, could be problematic. Yeah. 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 So, so timing wise, you had the verdict and then one of the jurors who was not with you basically gave an affidavit that this, this juror had had mentioned you working on big cases. 
Yeah, it was part of a new trial motion. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Wait, so, yeah, so, that, that one, that one had, I was a little sick to my stomach uh, when I read that one. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's nothing wrong you did. I, mean, I did nothing wrong. <laughs> right, I did right. nothing wrong. A juror did something she wasn't supposed to do, and thankfully it was harmless. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. I mean, you're, you're, what you did wrong is you're just too successful. Yeah, you were too impressive up there. <laughs> well, apparently right. they wow. wanted to find out about <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, she only does the big cases. Uh, <laughs> that's <yeah>. right. <laughs> that's, that's how you know you've got a good website, though. That's, that's right. It. That's, that's what right. she comes away with it. <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was kind of a, a little bit of a... Yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. So then I guess we, what you're saying then is the case got resolved while it was on appeal. Yes, it did. Good. Okay. Well, congr <laughs> congratulations on that. Yes. Before we, before the briefs were uh, submitted, I, I what board might have drafted their opening brief, but um, the Court of Appeal in Sacramento has a mediation program, and they basically say if your case is on appeal, you are going to do this, and they assign one of the appellate justices who's not going to decide your case, but they read the uh, materials and then they sit down with you and talk. So. Got it. Cool. All I, don't right, have, well, I mean, you. I, I don't, I don't have any more questions. I bounced well, around all over the place, but. So Chris, at the end, we always ask, uh, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about the Morrow versus uh, Ford Motor Company case that we haven't talked about already? You know, I, I would say this, um, and you guys know this, none of us do this. It's not a solo. It's not, it uh, you don't get these results striking out on your own, and, you know, being the hero. Um, it's a team effort. Yeah. And, and so much of the Moro evidence was built on the backs of a lot of great lawyers who spent a lot of time digging out the dirt and having, having it in, you know, available to the rest of us to share. Yes. And then, you know, I, I just credit Roger uh, in particular in saying, hey, you know, I need I want you on my team in this case. And I think that's something that we're doing more and more. We're joint venturing cases. We're trying cases together as teams because um, you don't need you don't want to go reinvent the wheel. And and it's great to have a collaboration and, and it helps you know, minimize the risk for everybody. So yeah. I just think don't let your ego get in the way of, you know, teaming up with people who, you know, can help you put on a good case and work together. So. No, I, I, I agree. We've, you know, we've tried a lot of cases with other lawyers and I, and I, I will say, I mean, usually what comes out of it is that you make a, a lifelong friend, uh, you know, with your trial team you know, and people who've been in, in battle with you. And every time I try a case with somebody from a different law firm, um, you learn something new. I mean, something, they may do something just a little bit different than the way you did it. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's a good idea. I like that, you know? And, um, so I, it, I think it's great experience to, uh, you know, try cases with as many lawyers as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all need to be like, I think, I think there's something about the lawyer personality that like, we don't like admitting, 
you know, we like learning things for ourselves or we don't like admitting that we don't know something, but there's, there is nothing wrong. And it's, it's the smart thing to do to know that there's a lawyer out there that you could work with who knows more than you (laughs) about something. It's, it's also collaboration too. You know, it's, there's a lot, um, if you, you know, hear each other and listen and Mm -hmm. talk through ideas, um, there's no, there's no one right way to do this stuff. So you know, yeah. I think that's the hard thing about us all working from home is that you don't, um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but like, you know, when you're in the office, you can hear somebody, you, you can just be thinking about something and just like go next door. You can hear, you know, two of your coworkers talking about something and bounce ideas off of each other. And it's just harder to do that now. Uh, when we, when, you know, I've been together with the same partners and lawyers in our firm for more years than I can count. And, you know, when we're in the office, when I'm in the office, there's a point in time about 1230, one of the guys walks around and goes, do you want to have lunch? And we all go to have lunch and we end up, you know, talking about this case or that case, or what should I do about this, you know, issue? And yeah, we're really missing that. Yeah. We're really missing it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Christine Spagnoli from Green uh, Broilette and Wheeler uh, out of Los Angeles and Santa Monica, California. And you can look up Chris at gbw.law. That's gbw.law. And we've been talking about the Morrow uh, versus Ford Motor Company case, which was a, a total verdict of uh, over $73 million. So um, fantastic work. And uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.